from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Wednesday, the 21st, and I hope your week is going well. We have two great authors today and two fantastic, fantastic, good grief, I can't even pronounce the words, fantastic sort of subplots for the interviews. So both of our guests have written incredible new books, but they are both entrepreneurially hyper-focused. So one is a work of fiction by Steve Barry, New York Times number one best-selling author uh, of some 20-odd books, and he's been on the show two or three, four times. One of our favorite guests, he always has great stuff to talk about. His books are historically based. The new book, the book we're going to talk about today, the subplot I was referring to, is it's a Bitcoin thriller, perhaps the first Bitcoin thriller. And Steve has identified, Steve's an attorney, has identified a fatal flaw in Bitcoin. And the book revolves around that. And if there's a fatal flaw in Bitcoin that would give me or you an advantage, a hyper advantage in trading, I would want to know it, wouldn't you? I just saw that Bitcoin was back up over 50,000. It's had a little bit of a run here in the uh, this year, in 24. And it's interesting to watch again. Remember, I think it got up to the highest ever with 64,000. Uh, so now could be a good time to buy, especially if we know the information from Steve. So I've read about a quarter of this book so far uh, since the interview was recorded and am blown away so far, loving it. After that, Brad Schaefer will be with us. He has written a new book called Life in the Pits. It's about trading in the commodities exchanges in New York and Chicago. You remember the movie Trading Places with the scenes with all of the guys yelling down in the pits, in the stock pits, and buying and selling. You remember the, the frozen concentrate orange juice in Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, Jamie Lee Curtis? Great, great movie from the 80s, maybe the 70s. I guess it was the 80s. And Brad was one of those guys yelling down in the pits. That's good. That's interesting. He taught me, showed me something that I had never thought about. And it's just, I've been thinking about it ever since, you know, for a couple of weeks since I recorded the interview. That method of going and becoming a pit employee was open to anybody, basically. He just he talks a lot about this in the interview, that you didn't have to have a Harvard degree to get that kind of Wall Street job. He he didn't have a, a an impressive degree, Brad, but he had a job on or in the pits. Those jobs are gone now because everything is electronic and digital. That means the people who go to Central Illinois Tech now, no longer have a way to get on Wall Street. The pit 
job used to be the entree for thousands and thousands of people who then worked their way up. And we had non-Harvard people actually making money, which we need. We don't want one university or a group of universities to control all of the stock market. And it's sad that there's no longer those alternative ways for people who didn't go to the Ivy. So anyway, great point. We will talk about that in the interview. Thanks for being here. We'll get started in just a second. Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us today. I'm very excited and honored to welcome back for the fourth time, I believe, Steve Barry, New York Times bestselling author, has written, goodness gracious, how many now? 20, what is the number? Uh, Full-length novels, uh, we're looking at 26. And sold in 42 different languages, I believe, Millions of copies. Steve, welcome back. How are you? Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to have to get you an official jacket like they do on Saturday Night Live, you know, pretty soon. That would be cool. Yeah, when you reach 25 books or whatever. But I think I'm at, I think this is book 26 for me, yeah. Okay. Well, I was referring to being on our show. We're not going to have to send you oh, like a show right. jacket or something with our merch on it. I have made it. I have, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a five-timer now, aren't I? I think so, yes. Yeah. So perhaps maybe only our second. Um, so it's a very elite club, even more elite than people who've been to the moon, for example. That's pretty cool. Thank yeah. very, very, very honored to have that <laughs> distinction. Mm-hmm. All right. So I do want to talk about the new book, Atlas Maneuver. Before uh, we do that, though, how how do you do so much? You're still a practicing attorney, I understand, right? And I've interviewed you, you know, so many times just in the last two or three years. It seems like you're putting out a book every six months. What well, time do you get up? You have like 27 hour days. Just walk us through how you get so much done in the same 24 hours. Well, the good part is I don't practice law anymore. So that works out good. So I don't have I'm that sorry. Problem. I thought you did. Well, not anymore. Uh, I don't have that anymore. And, but I do, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly disciplined. I'm a morning person. So I get started about seven in the morning. I go to about 11. I take an hour off. I come back. I go to about two or three o'clock. And I try to do that five days a week. You know, I try to do my thousand words a day. I mean, it's a this is a job. I've got to I've got to get a, a manuscript finished within a set time, and I have to have it turned in by a set day. And that's my number one job. That's the writer's number one job is to turn his manuscript in on time. So I make that happen. I it's uh it's just what you have to do. It's a, it's a job. You just you can't put it off, and you get it done. And I've been fortunate that I've been able to uh, to get it done, and I've I've never really had a problem with deadlines. You're right, though. We are doing two books a year. We did two books a year last year, this year, and we will for the next couple of years. The only way I can do that is I have a little help. I have a co-writer on the second book, the Luke Daniels series. The great thriller writer Grant Blackwood helps me out with those. All right. 
So that's about six or seven hours a day of writing. Yes. All right. That's about you, right. Yep. When you say a thousand words a day, and I happen to know that your nonfiction 200 page book is 50,000 words generically, and that fiction so your genre is a little bit longer than that, maybe seventy-five thousand words. Does, do those a little more sound... than that, maybe closer to a hundred? Okay, closer to a hundred. All right, hmm? uh, a thousand words a day. And then I also know this, Steve, that in my hmm? average radio show, we say twelve thousand words because hmm? I get it transcribed, and that takes us fifty-four minutes to create. So if you say a thousand words a day, that sounds doable to me that the average person could crank out a thousand words. I know that I can do it in 30 minutes. If I just talk for 30 minutes, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if I'm writing dialogue, I can do it pretty quick too. Yeah. Dialogue's pretty quick, but when you're trying to intermix action with information and plot, and I have a very nonlinear plot, so my plot skips around, there's a lot you have to keep straight, and you have to make up those thousand words, and all those words you make up have to go with all the words you made up the day before and the day before that. So, And, it, and you don't always sit down, and it just magically comes to you, and you go, okay, I know what to write. Sometimes you get a little stuck. So you have to factor it in. Uh, you know, It takes me about 10 months to finish the draft. So you work on multiple books at one time? No, no, I can only do one at a time. Uh, my, uh, the Cotton Malone books are very complex, and I have to kind of keep focused on them. When I work on the second series, the Luke Daniel series, I literally stop the Cotton Malone, put it aside, and I focus on that book only, and then I come back. There's, uh, I tried once to do two at once. It's, it's not possible. All right. Well, if it takes 10 months, how are you getting two a year then? Because I have help on the second oh, one. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have help. Uh, Grant does the first draft of that novel, so I just ha I do a rewrite of that book is what I do, which takes me about four to six weeks. Uh, but he, you know, him, I, I come up with, with the idea for the story. We plot it together. He writes the first draft, and I basically rewrite that draft and uh, create a, uh, a Luke Daniels book out of that. All right. When you mentioned that not every day you sit down and the ideas just pour out, right? The writer's block. How often, how do you solve? How do you solve it? You just, you just, it just works itself out. I mean, it's not, it's not a, a, a permanent thing. You know, writers get stuck every day, all the time. That's a common occurrence. You just learn to work around it and make it, you know, and, I go hit some golf balls or I'll go do something around the house. I'll do something to clean my head out and it will always reset. And then I'll find the, fix the problem and get back to it. All right. But I think, is it the hitting the golf balls that allows the creativity to work subconsciously? Oh yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I do some great plotting on the golf course when I'm, I play by myself and just, you can think it's, quiet it's beautiful and you're walking and you're thinking about everything so yeah i've done a, i've done a lot of plotting on a golf course and then how do you put down the plot do you is it a two or three page document that it's almost like an outline or you put together a, a spreadsheet or a powerpoint how do you you know, put it down I, so that you work on it i just do it uh 
one chapter at a time. I'll put chapter eight. I'll put the point of view character, what where the scene is set, and then I'll put what I want in that scene, in that chapter. Just write down the notes what I want there. Then I go chapter nine, I put right down there. And I just do it simple like that. I can't plot the whole book out at once, unfortunately. That takes too much time. I plot about 50 to 100 pages ahead of myself is the way I do it. I try to stay ahead. The problem is you plot faster than you write. So you always catch up with yourself. But, you know, I try to stay uh, as much as I can ahead so that I can keep writing. You don't want to be sitting down each day to write and plot while you write. You want to kind of think about that before you sit down to write. And as a lawyer, you get to charge for that, right? Those are still billable hours, right? Just thinking. In the old days. In the old days. <laughs> not anymore. Now it's all on me. Yeah. Uh, I used to love that. The idea that just thinking was a billable hour. Uh, anyway. Well, yeah, uh, like a, a lawyer is much like a writer. You spend the vast, vast majority of your time thinking about what to do and a small amount of your time actually doing it. And it's true for both professions. And then I think you spend a good chunk of your time making up words, too. I'm involved in a lawsuit right now, Steve, and reading the correspondence is just bewildering to me. You know, it's just like the writing that PhD uh, candidates and, you know, academic papers use. You know, it's not written to be read. It's just horrible. And I think half of it is, if I can just confuse you enough, you'll think I'm smart. Lawyers have a peculiar way of writing. It's a it's a it's a way that uses passive voice. It's not the most best way to write something, but the purpose of legal writing is to persuade, not to entertain. Purpose of fiction is to entertain. So I don't write in passive voice, I write in active voice, I write short, and I write concise. Shorter is always better. And you don't repeat yourself over and over again, where in legal writing you do repeat yourself. That's part of the persuasion of the writing. All right. Give us some advice on finding a publisher. So I'm a new time author. I've written America's great next novel. Uh, it's the best thing since Huckleberry Finn. How do I go get it published? Well, you're going to have to, you guys decide what you want to do. If you want to publish with a New York house, you have to go one way. If you're going to publish with some smaller houses, regional publishers, you go another way. If you're going to go independent publishing, you go another way there. So you have to decide which route you want to take. New York, you're going to need an agent. You're going to have to go get an agent. No, no New York publisher is going to look at your manuscript unless it comes from an agent. It just doesn't happen. The smaller houses, you can go direct to. You actually can go direct to, but I'd still get an agent if I were you and have an agent do that as well. But you can approach the smaller houses. And then the independent, you do that all on your own. And you'll have to learn the concepts and everything of how to put the manuscript together, get it readable, get it publishable, all those things. So there's there's three different routes with three different methods to, to, to take the route. You You just have to choose which one's best for you. And how do you get an agent? Well, it's uh, the best way today would be to, it's still the old-fashioned way. You go buy the book Guide to Literary Agents, put out by Writer's House every year. It's got every literary agent in the world in it. You go to the non-fee-paying section because you never want to pay an agent a fee ever. They get paid when you get paid, not 
when you don't get paid. Go to the non-fee paying section, find all the agents who deal with your genre and your type of book and follow the directions. Each one has a different submission process. That's one way of doing it. You can also go to conferences where there's agents, Thriller Fest, which is the gathering of thriller writers from all around the world. Every year in New York has Agent Fest where they bring in 60, 70 agents that you can talk to. So there are places you can go to meet them, but I did it the old-fashioned way. I just got the book. I sent out the letters, and I was fortunate that one took me. And are you still with that agent? No, I'm not. Uh, She was with me for the first uh, 13 books, and then I kind of... I kind of outgrew her. She told me one day that I would. I never thought that would happen, but it did. And so we had to part ways. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It was just a sad thing. But she was very understanding. She says, you need something a little bigger than me now. And so I I now have an, uh, an agent. I'm with Writer's House, and they've taken good care of me for the last 11 years. All right. Tell us about the new book. Uh, Alice Maneuver is Cotton Malone's latest adventure. He gets caught up in something that has fascinated me for a long time, Bitcoin. This is a book about Bitcoin, maybe the first thriller that I know of where Bitcoin is the plot. It's not just mentioned haphazardly or used. Bitcoin is the plot of the novel, and the reader's going to get a pretty good understanding of how it works, but they're also going to learn about a flaw in the Bitcoin system. There's actually a flaw in the entire system, which is fascinating, and this novel exploits that flaw, and Cotton gets caught up in the middle of it, and he has an adventure that takes him from Luxembourg to Switzerland to the mountains of Morocco, so it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a, it's a, it was, a, it was a fun to write, and I think the reader's going to have a great time with it. All right. How is it a Bitcoin thriller? Uh, explain more in detail what you mean by that. Is there Bitcoin gone and missing as we see in the news all the well, time? Well, Bitcoin, the, the, whole, the whole Bitcoin process and system and method is part of, is, is the plot of the novel. Uh, how that works, how that doesn't work, what can be done with that, how can it be manipulated, all of that is the plot of the novel. And uh, I didn't know anything about Bitcoin when I started the novel. I was just interested in it. It was fascinating. And I learned a lot. And so I hope the reader is going to learn a lot, too. They're going to get a pretty good understanding of how Bitcoin works. And they're going to get an understanding of this flaw in the Bitcoin system that Cotton gets caught up in when he gets involved in a war between the CIA and the world's oldest bank. Those two are in a war with each other, and Cotton's in the middle of it. It also deals with a treasure from World War II, Yamashita's gold, which was buried, uh, gold was buried all over the Philippines at the end of the war. That gold, some was found by the United States, and some say it was used for some particularly nefarious purposes. Uh, All of that is explored in the novel, too. All right. There's a trial going on in London right now, I believe, where a man is claiming to be the unknown Bitcoin founder who supposedly is a Japanese guy named Satoshi Nakamoto, but the trial is another guy, a a Scottish guy. Oh, wait, uh, Australian, I think. Have you followed this at all? I I have not. That's the first I've heard about it. I have to look it up and see because I deal with Satoshi in the novel. I have my own version of who he or she might be. And uh, so, but I'll take a look at that. Yeah. So, uh, 
I mean, it's been a huge mystery and he's supposedly worth $40 billion in the coins that he still has. Why is that? Or what are your thoughts on why he's hiding? And if it's a real person, a group of, I mean, there's so many conspiracy theories about who it is. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I have a, I have a theory that the book deals with, and it deals with a, it's a, it's a theory that has been around for quite some time and a long time. And I can tell you a little bit about it. It won't give away anything in the novel. Uh, Cause you learn this very early in the, in the book. Uh, there's a theory that, Bitcoin was actually created in late 2008, early 2009 by the Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA actually created it. And the no, reason that's why LSD they, you're thinking about, Steve. That's LSD. No, no, this, this is Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, uh, they, they were concerned that, you remember, we were in a dire financial situation at the end of 2008. There was concern that the world financial system would collapse. And... Uh, they wanted to have a peer-to-peer system where at least you could continue to do business if you had to. So they created this system. Of course, we did not have a financial collapse, which was wonderful, but Bitcoin caught on, and it caught on and became a life of its own. And I deal with this in the novel of, of where Bitcoin may have come from, because there's a, a lot of people say it may have very well been created in that manner. The fact of the matter is we have no idea exactly how, where, when, or who created Bitcoin. And that's what makes it so fun for a thriller. And your thoughts on uh, SBF and the sentencing coming up in March? Uh, It seems to me that there's going to be a huge disparage uh, that Sam Bankman-Fried is going to do 25 years, maybe, I'm guessing. And the guy who was running a competing company i can't remember his name right now a chinese name he also well he pled guilty i think and it doesn't look like he's going to do any time i see i I just don't understand it what are some of your thoughts from a legal perspective about the? i don't know much about that case if if what you're saying is true they may have made a deal with the one guy to get him to testify against the other guy uh that's that's how it works sometimes uh, when you you make a deal with one to get the other, because you can't get the other without getting that one. So I don't know the answer to that, but that's that's how it works at the time. The exchanges with Bitcoin are very risky. They are extremely risky. It would be akin to you taking your life savings and going down the street to a stranger's house and handing your money to them and say, would you please hold on to this for me? That's that's literally what you're doing when you do one of these exchanges. You don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. They're unregulated. You don't know anything about them, and you basically give them all your money. So when you do that, you take a huge risk, and you, you take a tremendous risk. Um, I don't deal with this so much in the novel because I want to deal with something much more fundamental. There's something fundamentally flawed about Bitcoin itself, and that's what I deal with in the book. In the book. But you can't tell us what that is, right? We have to no, read the book to that, would, that. That would give away. A, that would give away the whole plot. Yeah. yeah. But that's fascinating because I, I want to read that. The I looked it up. The other CEO is Changping Xiao, and he was running uh, a company called. Um, I just saw it. Um, it was the other. Oh, Binance. B-I-N-A-N-C-E. It was the other really big Bitcoin exchange. And so the two CEOs in that space 
are both now guilty. Um, he's going to pay a $4 billion fine. And it looks like the other ones are just going to go to jail for The whole thing baffles me why people would just give their money to a total stranger with no regulation and no nothing. It just, it's, it's, it's really unfathomable that folks would actually do that, but they do. I agree. I, you know, it, it's one that I've scary enough. It's scary enough to put your money into a bank and that's regulated and has all kinds of things associated with it. I can't imagine just giving my money to a total stranger. Well, I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you. All right. So what's up next? What is next for cotton? Well, Luke Daniels will come back on June 11th with a new adventure. It's the second Luke Daniels book called Red Star Falling. It'll be out June 11. And then Cotton will be back next year with a really fun story that deals with something that interested me a lot, the Medici family, the Medici family from Italy. It's called the Medici Return, and he'll be back next next uh, February for that adventure. Uh, the Medici is very interesting. Have you mm-hmm. tackled the Rothschild family in any way or just a tad tad in the Paris vendetta. I want to do some more with them. I I definitely want to do some more with them. Yes. Or what about Masons? Have you talked about how, how is masonry? I I did not use, I did not do them because the poor Masons get blamed for everything and they don't really bother a soul. So I kind of leave them alone. They're just a, they're a, they're a, they're a club and a social organization that, you know, that men enjoy and they're not really out to take over the world. So I kind of leave them alone. They do run the largest orphanage in Georgia. Well, that's, that's a very good thing. See, they do, they do good work. Steve, how do we find out more? Follow you and get a copy of the books. Uh, Alice maneuvers out in stores uh, so they can find it and, you know, pick it up. You can find out more about that book and me at my website, steveberry.org. Fantastic. You're going to have to put together like a compendium, all 18 in one book. I love those. Boy, that would be a big, thick book. (laughs) I've got Shakespeare in one volume though. Yeah. I don't think I could get them all in one volume. That'd be a, that'd be a a volume be about three feet wide. Would be called a tome then. It's not a volume anymore. It's a tome. Steve, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you in two months when the next one comes out. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back. Bye, bye, bye. Well, that's a that's a that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. That's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us. You know, all of us want to be the next great American writer. I think so many of us feel like we have that in us. I would like to welcome you. Another person who thinks he's the great American writer, but the fact is he's actually out there writing some great books. Please welcome Brad Schaefer to the show. He is an author, columnist, commodities trader, and musician. What an eclectic mix. And he's written about all of those things. He writes about history, arts, politics, science, 
business and pop culture in places like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Daily News, National Review, Daily Wire. He has written two novels, one on a really interesting story about a German flying ace who saves a Jewish family during World War II. He's just written a new book about a autistic boy whose father goes off to war. Brad, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. Did I get the story about Extraordinary right? So tell us, the new book is called The Extraordinary. Tell us the story. Well, actually, um, that is my second to last book. My newest book out is called Life in the Pits. But um, oh, that's sorry. just sure. No, that's all right, but that's just a memoir about my trading. I, I'm assuming you wanted to talk about the uh, the extraordinary, which is uh, that book was at, is very close to my heart. Um, it's the story of a boy uh, named Wes who is 14 years old and he's autistic. His father is a Marine who is a uh, an officer in the Marine Corps who goes off to Iraq. And he comes back uh, severely wounded, uh, debilitated by wounds, and is suffering PTSD. And so, this autistic boy is trying to um, is is trying to process all this. Uh, and I tried to, and I emphasize, I tried to get inside the mind of somebody on the spectrum. So the book is written in the first person, uh, told entirely through Wes's point of view. And uh, you all, but what it does is it sort of explores not just the impact of autism on family structures and on family dynamics, but also um, something that I have a very close experience with in my own family, which is PTSD. And so I wanted to kind of combine the two uh, subject matters, which I've, have interested me into something, into one particular uh, book. And so that's where The Extraordinary comes from. And I'm actually quite happy that it hit uh, number one in Kindle in the bestseller list on uh for autism, for psychological disorder, and childhood psychology. So that was a very that was a very big uh, compliment to the writing and the work that was done. How do you write in first person as an autistic person? <laughs> well, I, I don't know very much about it. The only exposure I have is my wife watches the TV show Love on the Spectrum, which is about mm. autistic kids or adults actually dating, and it's absolutely fascinating. They are. They're just such interesting people. So loving is what I see. How did you write, not being autistic yourself, about an autistic brain? Well, I've actually been somewhat accused of that, believe it or not, but in a mild form. Um, but I don't think that's what really drove me. What drove me was, um, well, first of all, a lot of friends of mine, uh, uh, personal friends, have children uh, on the spectrum. And I noticed, and I never really noticed it so much growing up, but I've noticed it more now. And it sort of threw me back to my days of when I was a senior in high school, I taught physical education at a place called Little City for the Mentally Handicapped in Palatine, Illinois. And it was a place, it was basically what it what it uh, described, which was basically a little city from everything from what back then in the 1980s, the terminology part, you know, I, I might be offensive now, I don't mean it to be, but was called from... Uh, from basically mildly retarded to profoundly retarded. Now, obviously, autistic is not in that category, but I've always had an interest in the brain and in uh, disorders like that, and and how they impact families. Because I would see, uh, you know, I'd see these very loving families with these children with mental uh, illness, uh, treating them uh, very wonderfully, and they, in return, like you said, they gave a lot of love back. And so I felt like there was a story there. Uh, and the thing about this, the autistic is that. 
you know, um, the spectrum is so varied that there is no such thing as a uh, prototypical autistic child, right? So I felt, uh, to answer your question, which was how do you get in the mind, I felt that I had enough um, poetic license to, I guess, for lack of a better term, create my own form of the spectrum. And, you know, just imagine like it being a spoke, uh, being a wheel of like thousands of spokes. And I kind of just invented my own little spoke in between a couple of the uh, categories that I, you know, that I researched in the past. And so I kind of created what I thought was the voice of a boy who is bright, but is also nonverbal. Um, you know, almost like a, almost like a Christy Brown type, but Christy Brown, you know, from my left foot, but he was more just, his problems were all physical, whereas mine are uh, psychological and mental as well. And, but I think I, I think I created a pretty good, uh, a pretty good character because I've gotten a lot of compliments from people with autistic children who appreciate the way that I approach the subject because it could be difficult, you know, and I didn't want to make a mistake and I certainly didn't want to offend anyone in the process. And so that I didn't, you know, that one I had to research a lot more, but the PTSD angle of it, uh, my father was a Marine in the Korean war and he literally had PTSD. So basically, uh, that was almost like taking my own high school experience, uh, experiences and then processing them through the eyes of an autistic teen uh, who is bright beyond his years, but uh, has no way to really uh, let it out and let people know it. And the only one who does know that there's something deep in there is his father. And so when his father gets injured, it really throws him for a loop. And his family has to suddenly learn that, you know, that this boy who is in their life is more than just their father's pet. You know, this, this boy is actually a member of this family. And so a lot of it has to do with that as well with the families and, and the stresses and how they overcome uh, issues. So I guess in a way, if you're looking for a genre, it's got kind of an ordinary people and flowers for Algernon ish feel to it. You know, if you, if you're looking for like an elevator pitch for it. Well, there's some books off the summer reading list, 1983. Yeah, right. That's well, I've been I around a long those. time. I remember both of them. Yeah. So. Yeah, we remember we were we were given the, the teen coming of age books, which were, if I recall, Ordinary People, Catcher in the Rye, and yep. A Separate Piece. Right. Those are the three books that we all had to read. And they were, and it's kind of in that vein, only just uh, you add the element of autism and PTSD to it. So it's not just childhood. You know, it's not just teen angst. There's more to it. So Ordinary People, I guess, would be the closest book to it. All right. I want to come back to that in a couple of minutes, but I also want to ask about the, the newer book, the nonfiction life in the pits. My time as a trader on the rough and tumble exchange floors. Tell us about that. And is the floor dying as we electronically become more and more dependent on the electronic exchanges? I don't know, but see, maybe you can tell us this. What percent of the trades happen automatically because of robo trading? It seems to me that that's oh. a huge percent. Tell us about what's well, going on, Brad. Well, actually, the book, uh, Life in the Pits, uh, My Time as a Trader on the Rough and Tumble Exchange Floors, came about from an article I wrote in 2016 in the Wall Street Journal, which effectively was the epitaph of those trading floors. Um, with the exception of, I believe, maybe the Chicago Board Options Exchange, um, those trading floors that I was in, I was in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange down in the Eurodollar futures and options pits. And then I was in New York in the New York Mercantile Exchange on the crude, on the crude oil products, options and futures. And uh, all those, both those exchange floors are now gone. Like they don't exist anymore. They went from being these gigantic arenas with thousands of people in them screaming and yelling to 
basically museum pieces. Um, everything we do now in trading, I would say 99.9%, you know, is done over the, what we call over the counter or point, point and click. I mean, a lot of those futures exchanges just don't, they just don't exist anymore because the process that we used open outcry, uh, which is, you know, the guy screaming and yelling. Anyone who's seen the movie Trading Places. It's exactly what I was thinking scene. of, yes. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that is a very accurate view. of That, that was not Hollywooded up. Um, it, it would get that crazy during what we'd call numbers. And a number was an economic release that came out. In the case of Trading Places, it was the frozen concentrated orange juice crop report. You know, that's not a real commodity, but uh, they actually filmed that in the gold pit in the Commodities Exchange in New York. Um but yeah, those pits are all gone now. They are, uh, they, and that's kind of why I wanted to write it as an epitaph and as sort of an homage to a way of doing business that really uh, began in, in the United States in the 1840s and went really all the way up till 2017. Um, and it's a shame that they're gone uh, because it was such a unique way to do business, but it was also a great way for state school guys like me who, you know, I was just a speech communication major. I never... I never studied finance or even calculus or anything like that. And, um, but I was able to get a job as a clerk on the floor, you know, uh, one of those guys getting coffee for the traders and work my way up that way. And that Avenue towards the, um, towards the hoi polloi, like me and my friends, you know, the non Ivy leagues are kind of shut down now. And so that's really a shame about that. Cause that was a, I call the floor the great equalizer in my article because it didn't matter your pedigree. Like I always tell people, I stood next to a high school dropout tennis pro to my left and a Harvard law grad to my right. And they were both the same. They both had the same quality, whatever it is, whatever intangible it is that makes one a good trader. And, you know, their education, their pedigree, who they knew, how good their golf game was, none of that mattered. All that mattered was did they know how to buy ones and sell twos and do that a lot? If so, they were good traders. If they didn't, they weren't. And they washed out very quickly. So, and I think that that is kind of that we've kind of lost the the chutzpah that it required to become a, a floor trader. And I hope that it kind of pops up in other areas of business because uh, over the counter now, it's much more analytical. Like what I do, I don't, uh, you know, there's no screaming and yelling. You're just pointing and clicking and you're writing down your trades and you're sipping your coffee as you do it. And I listen to jazz music actually as I, <laughs> as I trade. So. Well, Brad, totally there's nothing different. wrong with a good state school education. I have two college graduates as kids. I got two more to oh. go, and they both went to state schools. When you yeah. go to have four kids, you can't go private anymore. We had we oh, said I know state. that. Yeah, and they yeah. both got amazing jobs right out of school and are doing awesome. I think yeah, no, state just, school yeah, people are smarter. It. Actually, they work well, harder. in certain ways. Yeah, you know, I was just talking about just the uh, the way that Wall Street. Recruits. I know, I know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, no, in fact, if anything, I think, like you said, I think a lot of, I think part of the shame of this avenue of the state, you know, I use state schooler just as a generic term. I went to University of Illinois, you know, and, um, I just mean like non Ivy league, non, know, you know, yeah, I got it. Non, non, non skull and bones at Yale, you know? And, um, you know, and I think, and one of the things I say is I think that in my article and in my book is that I think a certain bit of chutzpah and a certain bit of street smart has been lost. And, you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, I use the analogy, I believe it's the 10th man. Somebody, uh, I hope I don't get that wrong, but the Mossad, they have what they call their 10th man, which is basically if nine guys think one thing, the 10th man has to imagine the most, you know, unimaginable, you know, uh, standard deviation away 
uh, you know, possible uh, scenario. And the whole idea is to get you to think outside the box a little bit. And obviously, I think what happened with 10-7, they lost their 10th man a little bit. And, you know, to use that as an analogy, I think that's what happens to some trading firms when guys who are used to trading on the floor who really have seen it we know the markets are just, they're just human constructs. You know, if something's worth, what's that line in uh, trading places where uh, Dan Aykroyd tries to hawk his $6,500 watch or whatever, and he's explaining why it's such a valuable watch. And the guy says, you know, in Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Yep. Right? And he takes it now. What, but what you really saw there, well, that was kind of, that was kind of interesting from a trading standpoint, because what you saw was, Dan Aykroyd's model, his theoretical models were telling him it was worth $6,500. And were he a trader he, or were he just somebody like doing uh, doing accounting, he could actually book his net worth as plus 6500 with that, right? But what, what the, uh, the guy was a blues guy. I forget who the uh, guy was behind the counter. But what he said was, in Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. So the actual market was $50, right? So there was a, you know, and I think the floor trader is the guy who might say to the guy who thinks it's worth 6,500. Look, before you actually do this, believing it's 6,500, why don't you go around and check around and see what people are actually willing to pay for this? Cause that's where your real value is. And that's the thought process that you get from the trading floor where I think if you're over the counter and you're, you're nothing, but you come out of like computer science, you come out of like high finance and analytics stuff, your model will say it's worth X, but it doesn't matter what, you know, and that's what happened to long-term capital management when they blew out. You know, their models said that these things are worth X, but the whole market is telling them, well, yeah, but we know that you're the only guys that own this. So you're not getting out of this unless you sell it at X minus 10. And they're like, but it's worth X. And like, well, we don't care. You know, and that's where that human factor comes in that you will never lose in trading. It'll just change its, uh, it'll change the venue from being a bunch of guys screaming and yelling on a trading floor to a bunch of guys like me sitting in my office pointing and clicking, but you're still competing and you're still trading against other human beings. So the psychology is the same, just the modus operandi has changed. But I think that's one of the things I find interesting about markets is that they never change really because they're human constructs as a whole. And I think as long as you know that, you can decipher them as you know if you can't, you know. So anyway, <laughs> that's my that's my take on the state school uh, analogy that we were talking about. Well, I love that analogy. It makes a lot of sense to me. Brad, yeah. why did you leave your commodity job and start becoming uh, a writer? Are you able to support yourself with the writing, or did you just make a bunch of killings in the market and now live off of your uh, profits and have what was his name, Elliot Denholm, as your butler, like Elliot they did Denim. in uh, trading <laughs> yeah. places? Is Coleman? that the guy's name? Did I get it right? Coleman? Yeah, Elliot Denim Elliot, the actor. Yes, he played Coleman. He yes, played exactly. Coleman. The butler. Yes. No, um, actually, no. I'm uh, I, I've been working the whole time that I write. Uh, I've I trade. Uh, I uh, I was trading on the on the floor of the exchange, uh, several exchanges until '96. Then I went uh, what we call over the counter, and I became a broker. So I went from uh, went from you know trading my own uh, products to brokering products between others in natural gas, and I even tried uh, real estate derivatives for a while, but mostly in energy. I've been an energy broker all this time. And writing has sort of been my, my hobby. In fact, if anything, I've, I was careful not to quit my day job. Um, and uh, I mean, the books have turned to profit, but there's certainly nothing that you, there's no, there's no Stephen King or, uh, you know, uh, whatever name a famous author in, in my, I, I don't see that in my near future unless I hit something. So I write really just to, uh, to express myself, 
to let the world know I was here to tell a good story. Um, and every time I get a compliment from somebody, especially people I don't know who will pop on my Facebook and say, Hey, I just read uh, of another time and place. And one of the best world War two books I've ever read. I'm like, that's awesome. Or my child has autism and your book really allowed me to, you know, to even appreciate him more, or, you know, or something like that. Or guys on the trading floor right now are pegging me all over going, Hey, you know, I remember that trade. I remember you doing that or, Holy cow, you know, that brought back great memories. So I do it for that. I do it, um, like I go on Daily Wire a lot, and I like to tell stories of, of military history especially. So if you go on Daily Wire, I have all these military series that are available to everybody on, like, the Battle of Midway, uh, the Battle of uh, Stalingrad, uh, Persian, you know, Persian Wars, uh, you know, all different stuff like that, as well as other, you know, political and just social commentary. So, um, but I'm pretty much all over the map, you know, I just like to, I, I like to write just cause I express it's a outlet. Otherwise I'd, I'd just be trading all day and that'd be boring. I love it. I love that philosophy. And I love the idea that you kept yeah. your day job. So you reduce risk, which is one of our big things here. Yep. We hate risk. So, uh, kudos on doing that. Where do your ideas come from? How does the book take shape and how does it actually come to you? And then how do you, what's your process? Uh, right. One of the things we want to do is teach people how to actually write a book. I've got four out Brad and I'm a hundred percent, a dictator. I talk the books just like the radio <laughs> and then transcribe and then edit. I cannot sit down and type a book out. I have to talk it out. No, I, no, I, I, um, no, I, I like to type and then I'll, uh, the best way to proofread, uh, you probably already know this is the best way to proofread is to read something out loud to yourself. Well, as if you're recording. The, the yeah. word will read it to you now. Yeah. So, read out loud. Yeah. That's yes, key. I because, love that. Yeah. Cause you're right. That yeah. you, 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 all of a sudden it's, you know, going and then it says, you know, something that, you know, that sounded horrible. And the, yes, right. It's great tool. Well, because when you're writing and you write fast, you, you know, you, you tend to forget like the definite articles and stuff like that. So instead of saying he went to the store, you might write, he went to store, but your mind fills that in. So, but if you read it out loud, it forces you to read every word and you miss, you know, and I, I catch so many errors that way, but the process itself, I think the best way is, I'll just describe the first book uh, of another time and place. And the story is about a German fighter pilot who saves a family of Jews during the height of the Holocaust, you know, and, and what it is, and the story is, um, you know, a lot of stuff that you write, you take from your own experience and you kind of fold that in because I always like to tell people, look, write about what you know. And so the way that book came about was, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go off too much of tangent, so tell me if I am, but uh, my neighbor, uh, this was about 20 years ago, my neighbor uh, who is since deceased, but he was in his 90s at the time. I got to know him and I started talking to him. He'd always be outside chopping wood and stuff. He was a real robust guy. You know, you'd never know he's in his nineties. And as we started talking, he, um, it turns out the guy was a navigator on a B 17 and was shot down and was, had been a prisoner of war for a year and a half in Germany. Like you'd never know it, you know, and I'm, I'm basically telling the kids, my wife, I'm like, we've got a bona fide war hero next to us, like the real deal, you know? And then he asked me to help him with his memoirs and cause he knew that I like to write. So I got to really know that subject matter. And I was like, you know, there's, you know, and the thing that, that interested me though, is that he said that after the war, they were in a glider club and a lot of the members of the glider club were actually ex Luftwaffe pilots who had been given, I guess, I think they called it a white stamp, which basically meant they weren't Nazis or anything. They were just 
guys fighting. You know, there are other, you know, the Luftwaffe actually had a lot of really hardcore Nazis too. So I'm not, I'm not doing that whole, you know, that whole thing. But um, these particular guys were apparently, uh, you know, considered okay enough. They came over to the U.S. and they were in this glider club with a bunch of ex Eighth Air Force guys. And they would literally sit around and talk about, oh, yeah, I remember that mission. Yeah, you know, you guys heard us bad on that one. Yeah, my friend, you know, really almost like old football guys talking about games. But these guys were trying to kill each other. So I was like, that's an interesting story because, uh, you know, we know about the Memphis Bell. We, you know, right now there's that Masters of the Air that's going on in uh, on Apple TV, which is a great series. And, you know, and so we've always learned about what the bomber crews went through. But I was curious what the Germans were dealing with. So I started researching that and I started reading diaries from German fighter pilots. And, and I came to understand that one of the most dangerous things you could have done in World War II by 1944 was to climb into a German fighter plane and fly up and try and take out an American bomber because there were, th there were hundreds of bombers. And, you know, the whole anyway, it was very dangerous. One guy wrote that every time he climbed into his canopy, he felt and closed the cock or climbed into his cockpit and closed the canopy over his head. He felt like he was closing the lid to his coffin. So I was like, there's a story here, too. And it was kind of like Das Boot, you know, or, like, or the enemy below, but in right. the air. But I didn't want it to be a book where it was either. I didn't want to let my Nazis off the hook. You know, I didn't want it to be a book where I, it was just about an apolitical fighter pilot, like, you know, like Kurt Jurgens in the enemy below or something like that. Right. Or even Jagen Prochnauer and Prochnauer and uh, Das Boot. You know, you don't know these guys politics or you think they're anti-Hitler and stuff like that. But I wanted to write the book about the German fighter pilots experience, but I didn't want it, you to think I was rooting for them. So what I decided to do is I made him a pianist because I played, I wanted to be a concert pianist when I was a kid. I made him a pianist before the war and the, and the story began to morph into a story about growing up in Nazi Germany as a boy and how he was able to resist all that with his, you know, and his teacher was, his piano teacher was Jewish and then one day they disappeared and then he finds out that his fiance is hiding them in the attic, right? He's on his way to get decorated by Hitler for his fighter pilot exploits. And his fiance says, here, I've, I'm hiding them, you know, a la Anne Frank, right? And so that's kind of how the story came about. And then I decided at first I wanted to write it as a screenplay. So I literally wrote down a bunch of notes until I had the outline of a screenplay. I wrote it down. And then I was able to talk to a guy through a mutual acquaintance, a man named Rich Hall, who became, who produced She's All That. And he's now very big in Hispanic uh, movies and stuff like that he's, he's and he helped me hone you know hone the script and he tried to sell the script but we couldn't find a buyer but in the meantime i wrote it into a novel because i wanted to and i wrote it first person and uh it turned out uh quite well and i'm very happy with it and uh that book's actually made me a okay amount of money and it's um I don't know. It's just one of those books where I hope will be a movie someday because it started off as that but that's how these things germinate you know they they kind of come about you take pieces of things that you see around you and you try to put them in and you and i always start off with a what if and you know like for instance what if a boy with autism's father was a soldier who was the only one who understood him gets shipped away and then comes back a wounded and broken man you know what would happen then um you know i, I wrote one book which hasn't gotten published yet which has you know i haven't found a buyer yet but called avenue a which is about a black policeman in the 1930s in new york city and it's what if a harlem black cop in the 1930s is brought down to lower manhattan to solve a series of murders and thrown into this irish precinct 
you know, and suddenly he's rubbing shoulders with like LaGuardia and all these, you know, Meyer Lansky and all these different characters. And, you know, what would that be like? How would he solve this? And what would he face from a prejudicial standpoint and all that? And so that's where a lot of these stories come about. You know, what if a crude oil, I have another book, what if a crude oil trader decided to, uh, to destroy the Alaska pipeline and go along a bunch of crude oil futures before he did it. Well, that was the premise for another book I wrote called Position Limit. You know, that wouldn't and be so that hard because I've stood on the Alaska pipeline myself. You can walk right up oh. to the thing. So, oh yeah, well that's the thing. Yeah, these guys just basically these. I have these terrorists. They just take a high-powered rifle. They fire a couple shots into it. They, you know, the viscosity goes away. And before you know it, they've shut down the whole pipeline just with a few shots. Yep. And then they, in, in my particular case, they introduce a. Okay, here's another. Here's where an idea comes from, right? They introduced a bacteriological agent into the pipeline to eat all the oil. Well, where'd that idea come from? That came from when I was writing a report as a kid about the Exxon Valdez and how they used bioremediation bacteria to, to you know, to, to clean off the rocks, right? So I said, okay, well, what if they created a super bacteria and it got and an evil trader got a hold of it and he was able to use it? And then and then who would have made the bacteria? Well, probably the Israelis, right? Because it's a great way to control the Arabs if they can control their oil, right? So it turns into all that, right? And that's kind of how these stories start to spin. And then you need to just sit down, at least the way I do it, is I just sit down, I sit down and I just, uh, you know, write the book, you know, and I don't know where it's going sometimes, to be honest. So I don't really usually have a full outline. So I just kind of let it go where it goes. That's sort of the Stephen King style, I think. Brad, so Stephen King, yeah. We need to wrap it up. How do we find out more? Get copies, find your website. Oh, no problem. Well, it's Brad Schaefer, S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R, author.com. Or if you go on Daily Wire, you can find me. If you go on you know, the Wall Street Journal, you can find me. I also have a Substack called As I See It. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, and you can also find me on even Twitter. I've got 200 followers now, so that's huge, although I think half of them are bots anyway. So <laughs> I've got a, 100 followers. I didn't know I had that many friends, but I guess I did. So. Brad, very interesting. Great stuff. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. We are out of time on this wonderful Wednesday, but yes, we're back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now. Go make a million dollars.